Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Hope you're doing okay. Happy holidays. I hope that's going all right. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. My guest today is Lauren Elkin author of a new book called Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art. And so Wolf says, you know, I I found that I haven't been able to tell the truth of my experiences as a body, but perhaps in 50 years, some woman will be able to. And if you look forward 50 years from 1931 when she's writing this, you get to 1981, and I think you can actually, you know, look a little bit earlier and look at the kind of convulsions of the 1960s, the, you know, Vietnam protests, the civil rights marches, the kind of way that, you know, once again, Western culture was trying to overthrow a feeling that, you know, the the world that they'd inherited was not righteous and, you know, was just leading to a destructive war all over again. So it's out of that kind of 60s moment that you get you know, the rise of feminism, obviously, as we know it today, or second wave feminism, but also these these feminist artists who, you know, like the birth control pill has been legalized. They're fighting for, you know, the legalization of abortion. There's a sense that a woman's body is going to be hers to do with as she pleases now in a way that it's never been before, you know, in all of recorded history. All right, that was Lauren Elkin, author of the new book, Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Art Monsters is an erudite and insightful exploration 
of the ways in which feminist artists have done their work reacting against the patriarchy and redefining their own aesthetic aims. This is a book about female artists working in both literary and visual artistic media, and it's about their attempts to tell the truth about their experiences as bodies. Art Monsters is a book of intellectual daring that draws links between a variety of artists, connecting and examining their work in relationship to one another, and it does so in really interesting and often unexpected ways. I had a really fascinating conversation with Lauren Elkin. That is coming up in just a bit. A quick reminder before we get going about my weekly email newsletter, you can subscribe over at Substack. That's where the newsletter lives, bradlisty.substack.com. It's pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of this show on a weekly basis. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you want to hear from me once a week in your inbox, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and sign up. Likewise, there is another people Patreon community that you can join if you so desire. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, book club subscription, all that kind of stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the debut novel, The Liberators by E.J. Coe. The Liberators is the December pick of the Other People Book Club. I recently spoke with E.J. Coe on this program. You can listen to her episode. The Liberators is a novel that spans two continents and four generations. It exquisitely captures two Korean families forever changed by fateful decisions made in love and war. This is a family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. That's The Liberators, the debut novel by E.J. Ko, available now from Tin House. Okay, so my guest once again is Lauren Elkin. Her new book is called Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art. It is available now in the United States from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Lauren Elkin's essays have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, and the Times Literary Supplement. Her book, Flanus, was named a notable book of 2017 by the New York Times Book Review. She is a native of New York. She lived in Paris for 20 years, and now she resides in London. I had a great time meeting Lauren Elkin and talking with her about her excellent new book, and I am happy to share that conversation with all of you right now. So, here we go. This is Lauren Elkin, and her new book, One More Time, is called Art Monsters. This is a different cover to the UK edition. Uh, the UK edition featured a painting by someone I write about in the book called Janine Figgis. But for the American cover, they wanted something a bit cleaner, and they asked me if there were any photographs I could send them that would in some way capture what the book was about or maybe include one of the artists that I talk about. And I sent them this one along with a few others of, I think, another one of Hannah Wilkie pouring latex um, or Linda Benglis also pouring latex. Uh, but this one is the one that they 
really went for. I think, you know, it's very striking, obviously, to have Hannah Wilkie's ass on the cover of your book. <laughs> and some of my friends were a little concerned that some American bookshops might not want to stock it or have it face out because it might offend um, some viewers. But I think if you're going to be offended by this cover, then this is not, you know, the book you should pick up anyway. I was going to um, say, it sort of feels like you have to own it, right? You have to own it. If you're going to write this book, you have to be ready to take those totally. hits. But, you know, the book is both about the body of the woman artist and and sort of attempts by women artists to get the body in the frame and to own their bodies and try to explore through their art what it is to be in a body. And partly about um, the difficulty that women artists have had professionalizing as women artists and, you know, sort of dealing with their work as work, as, as a kind of professional endeavor, as a career, something that is remunerated or not in the case of, you know, performance artists who are trying to escape from the whole capitalist exchange around art. Hannah Wilkie did a little bit of both. Um, but in this instance, she was with her former partner, the artist Klaus Oldenburg, and they were staying at the Chateau Marmont and she was doing a bit of work. And she asked him to hit the shutter to click it, to make, to actually take the physical picture. But she did the whole setup. The idea for the picture was hers. You know, all of the kind of craft behind this image belonged to Hannah Wilkie. But Klaus actually claimed it as his own work because he was, you know, the great artist, the art monster, you know, par excellence. And because his, his, you know, his finger did the work of, you know, closing the shutter on the camera, he claimed it as her work, as his work, where she claimed it as hers. She says this is one of her performalist self-portraits. Um, there are a number of other self-portraits that I talk about in the book where she didn't actually take the picture, but she, you know, masterminded the whole setup and she was the visionary as well as the subject of, you know, the the piece itself. So there it was, they worked it out in court and she, you know, in her estate have the right to call this her work now, but, you know. Oh, I was going to say. I like that there's that kind of conflict there. Well, yeah, that's interesting. That speaks yeah. to what you're writing about, but I was wondering yeah. who prevailed. It sounds like she prevailed. She did. Yeah. Good. I mean, I'm I'm not sure that like the Oldenburg estate necessarily agrees, but I think that you know, for all rights and purposes of using this image, we we went to the Wilkie estate. Okay, and Maybe you I'm selected get this sued photo, by Oldenburg. No, it was one of a few that I sent them, but uh, I think they they made the ultimate decision. Okay, okay. Well, it's a great cover. I love it. Thank you. And I want to talk uh, next about this term, art monster, which so many people came to know by reading Jenny Offel's novel, Department of Speculation, which I think is the same for you, right? That was, that was my introduction to it. And I gravitated to it immediately. I think so many creative people who read that novel saw the term art monster and sort of glommed onto it mm. and kind of filed it away. So can you just talk about your experience with it and how you got interested in maybe writing about quote unquote art monsters but also I think how your relationship to the term evolved and how mm -hmm. there was kind of an evolution, I think, in your understanding of it and your depiction of it in the book itself. Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, like you and like everyone else, I read Jenny Offill's brilliant novel, Department of Speculation, when it came out in 2014 and was really struck by that phrase. And all of my friends were too. And we were like, you know, I'm an art monster. Am I an art monster? What's an art monster? <laughs> right. um, and I, I started a little like document on my computer, which is something I do whenever I come across an idea that I think I might want to write about or explore further. I sort of started a little art monster document. And from time to time, I'd come back to to it and think about it and mull it over. And 
what kind of bothered me as we were starting to see lots of like essays being published about art monsters in the years that followed was that they were so often about how difficult it is to be a parent and have an art practice um, or specifically a mother and an artist at the same time that, you know, being an artist requires a kind of obsessive focus, monstrous focus that parenthood just, you know, makes impossible. There's always someone coming to find you. In fact, my son may come and find me while we're doing this conversation. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll bring him into the interview. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he'll, he'll have a lot to say. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the time when I, I read this novel, I didn't, I wasn't a mother yet and I didn't have any caring responsibilities. I was just, you know, myself and it still resonated with me. So I started thinking like, there's something worth kind of like drilling down into or exploring in this idea of the association of art making and monstrousness and creativity and feminism, or just, you know, like the ontological experience of being female and wanting to make art. I wonder what that is. And around the same time, this is after Flanos came out in 2016, 2017. Um, Flanos is your, Flanos, I, I want to interrupt just so people oh, listening okay. are oriented. Flanos is the book that you wrote about women walking in yeah. like cities all over the world, right? It's about the female, what, walking experience. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You, yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Um, yeah, so that had come out in the UK in 2016 and in the US in 2017. So that was when I was trying to think, you know, what's what's the next book going to be? And my PhD advisor had died in the summer of 2015. Her name was Jane Marcus, and mother of Ben Marcus, actually, the, the writer. And she was a formidable wolf scholar and big art monster, academic art monster, like a very difficult person to know. But also, I mean, she would be like your biggest champion and also your worst enemy in the blink of an eye. It was very difficult to know where I stood with Jane. But she famously edited an American edition of Wolf's kind of feminist socialist polemic, Three Guineas, that restored to it these photographs that had been deleted decades ago because who knows why they were taken out, but they were, I guess, understood by publishers to be too um, provocative. So they were removed. And Jane Marcus edited this edition of Three Guineas that restored the photographs. And she did a kind of thorough, like scholarly introduction and apparatus footnotes, you know, the whole nine yards. And that was the kind of culmination of decades of work on Wolf to really change people's perception of her from like effete, neurotic, like high modernist snob into really committed socialist, feminist, pacifist kind of writer. I don't know if that <laughs> that's how, how Jane was able to change the view of Wolf within the Academy. I'm not sure beyond the ivory tower if people's view of Wolf ch changed that much. But anyway, I was very inspired by Jane's own activism in the 70s and the 80s. She was a, you know, big committed feminist, like doing lots of, you know, holding lots of like consciousness raising meetings and licking envelopes and marching in the streets and the whole nine yards. And I wanted to write about Jane somehow in connection with Three Guineas and somehow reckon with how difficult it is when you're a woman to make work that people don't want you to make, as was the case for Three Guineas with Virginia Woolf. Everyone she knew told her not to do it. They said, you know, war is coming and we need to be dealing with that. Enough with your feminism. You got the vote. You know, aren't you happy now? Like, what else do you want? And Woolf was convinced that she had to 
lay bare for her readers the relationship between patriarchy and fascism. And, you know, that that book is an incredibly angry book. And most of her friends dropped her, at least for a little while after she published it. And even after her death, E.M. Forster, another, you know, Bloomsburyite, said in his Reed lecture, this is a very important lecture, I think it's at Cambridge, that Wolf's feminism was a blight on her work. He likened it to spots, like some kind of illness and malady. She was a great writer, shame about the feminism. So I wanted to write about, you know, Jane being this kind of like ball breaking feminist who terrified people and amazed people in equal measure. And Wolf, knowing she probably shouldn't write this book and being unsure about how it would you know, impact on her life and her relationships and her career, but doing it anyway. And so somehow, I don't know, in some kind of brainstorm moment, I realized that there was a line connecting this idea of the art monster and like monstrous creativity and Jane and Virginia Woolf. And that was the kind of, you know, through line that I decided to start following into this book. Yeah. Well, Virginia Woolf gets an epigraph and then also I think the last word in the book and there's a lot of artists, a lot of female artists who show up in art monsters. And it kind of feels like, to me anyway, it was like a lesson in art history. A lot of these artists were unknown to me, if I'm being totally yeah. on honest with you. And so that was kind of great because their work is super interesting and you do a really nice job of not only writing about them and their work, but also tying their work to one another, whether explicitly or implicitly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do have a question about your PhD and your work with Ben Marcus's mother, Jane. Mm -hmm. Where did you get your PhD? I did it jointly at the City University of New York Graduate Center and the University of Paris 7. Oh, okay. And so she taught in New York? Yeah, she was at City College for years. And then in the CUNY system, you can be kind of borrowed from your home college and given an appointment at the Graduate Center, which is only like an MA and PhD granting institution. And that's um, also where Maggie the, Nelson did her PhD. <laughs> oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm learning about this. Uh, <laughs> and the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. That's it's funny because I interviewed Ben years ago. I don't know if he told me this or not. Maybe my memory is, is terrible and I'm totally yeah. forgetting, but that's interesting to me. He, he has a Jane character in his, um, is it, what is his book called? Famous American Women or Great American Women or something. There's a character who's named after his mom who's like very scary. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Scary mom. I like it. Uh, so let's talk. I want to talk about motherhood because to me, I read that into this book. Hmm. Like there's an autobiographical subtext. And sometimes I think you touch upon it. But I felt that in this book. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that you started writing it before you had a child. Mm -hmm. But I imagine you might have been entertaining now that you do have a child. You, maybe you were entertaining, like, should I have a child? You know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then also thinking about your career ambitions and the work that you wanted to do as a writer in conjunction with that. So all of this was of interest to you personally. Sometimes I, I guess as a reader, I'm looking for that in a text. Mm. And there are some bits of personal writing in this book that I quite liked. I know from, I think, reading an interview that you did that people have been telling you that they quite like those parts too. Mm -hmm. Like they like when you get personal. I think readers like it when a writer weaves themselves into the story in some way. But is that an accurate read of the book? A? Yeah, it's so funny because it, it really depends on your, I don't know, just it's so subjective. I 
have been finding that that people come up to me consistently and say, I really love the way you wove your own experiences into the book. It's not like, you know, you're not like batting us over the head, but like it's there. And then I was saying that to Merve Emre when we were doing an event together at McNally Jackson when I was in the States. And she was like, oh, that's funny. I thought you were hardly in this book at all. So it's been weird. Like some people just don't don't see it. And then you know, the response to Flanoz was kind of mixed. There were people who thought, because that's a book that really braids together autobiography much more than this book and, you know, criticism. It was like straight down the middle. Half the readers were like, I loved the autobiographical stuff. The stuff about cities was a little hard going and academic. And then there were people who were saying, I love the stuff about the cities. You're a great writer about cities. Shame about all the personal stuff. I don't want to hear about your boyfriends. <laughs> so I, you know, you just have to write the book that works for you and hope that enough people like it to, you know, help you help you get out of bed in the morning. Um, but yeah, for this book, it felt like from the outset, I thought that I would be present because it feels like a project of mine, at least at this point in my life, to acknowledge the I in the room, that this is not like an omniscient work of art history or something or feminist criticism that, you know, has been handed down to me from on high and I have transcribed it, but that I am here and I'm a fallible person and I have other stuff going on outside the frame. And that actually affects and shapes the way that the book itself is going to be. It shapes the object that I'm able to make, you know, given all of those constraints. So as, you know, my son was born and life went on and then we had a pandemic and then it was like, oh, for, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your show. I have a really- You can, please. Like, okay. So so it was, you know, for fuck's sake, like I have a deadline. This isn't cool. Now we just don't have any childcare and we all have to sit at home and people are dying and that really sucks. So it was just a horrible, horrible moment of like creative desperation and no time to work and absolute panic. And it was just, yeah. So that was obviously- it's a bit like, you know, a tree is growing and if it suffers some kind of trauma, like that shows on some level, you know, in the the circles as they're, as it's growing. It's a terrible metaphor. But anyway. No, I'm, I'm with you. I got you it. Know. I like it. <laughs> if something happens to you when you're writing a book, it's very hard to keep it out. And so I found as I went that it, it all had to just come in and, you know, be sort of more present than I had necessarily intended it to be. I think I thought I wanted to write a book that was going to be, I don't know, a bit like Flanners was intended to be, much more kind of direct, here's a thesis, here's how I'm working my way through it. Um, and then as the book took shape, I just realized it was like thesis proof. Um, it didn't want to have an argument. And as I started like looking at all of the work of these various artists and you know, reading the couple of writers that I include in here, felt like they were telling me not just lots of different things, but sometimes things that clash with one another and they didn't want to submit to anything as banal as like an overarching thesis. It felt like it had to be a book that was going to embrace like a both and kind of methodology and philosophy. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of follow the thread, follow the narrative thread where it leads. And sometimes that led, you know, right into my house. <laughs> and most of the time it just kind of, you know, led to Eva Hesse or Hannah Wilkie or Carolee Schneeman. Well, that's, that is, and again, this is something that you talk about in the book is the use of the word monster as a verb. Yeah. Like that to me, the approach that you just described or that you arrived at 
over time as you worked on this feels like an appropriate monstering. <laughs> like that's what a monster, like an art monster would do, right? Would not, sub- would not subscribe to a very narrow methodology or follow rules in a really strict way, but would be unencumbered. Correct? Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, people would ask me as I was writing, are you an art monster? I was like, but I, I mean, I think that's kind of the point of the book is to work through this idea that I have that I can't possibly be an art monster because, you know, I'm incredibly bourgeois. Like, how could I be? I don't, you know, I have like a partner and a kid in a house and I live in London. Like, you know, I'm not, my work, I think is, I don't think that anyone would call it radical necessarily, but like, it's, it's kind of like spiky and, and, and like resistant to something. I'm not sure what. So that's really, I don't know. I think I, I, I struggle with the idea of, of like wanting to, to be monstrous in the sense of taking up more space and, you know, like throwing people's expectations in their faces of, you know, how I'm meant to be and, and behave. It's funny. I'm translating um, Constance Debray right now. Did you read um, Love Me Tender? I think is the book that came out from Semiotext in English. I really, really mm-hmm. recommend it. If you haven't um, come across it, it's called Love Me Tender. Constance Debray, amazing French writer. She's the granddaughter of a fim- former prime minister and her, her family is just incredibly famous. They have a hospital named after their family in Paris. Um, they have like a tram station named after them, very prominent. And she she's written this book called called Non, which in French is a double meaning of both no and name. So I don't know what we're going to call it in English, but it's just a book about refusal. It's like, I won't be the way that I've been taught to be and everything depends on me refusing that. I mean, talk about an art monster, like Constance Debray is like, she left her partner and child shaved all her hair off, gave all her clothes and belongings away and just kind of lives this very marginal life, like from garret to garret. She has no like fixed abode, but it's just taking off as this like literary superstar right now. Anyway, point being, I I, I think the book is a, is a kind of reckoning with the limits of my own monstrosity, but a coming to terms with that and an attempt to locate power in in a place that's other than maybe one might expect it to be from a kind of monstrous framework. So rather than being a monster, I'm trying to see if maybe I can monster in my work. Yeah. Well, and it's, uh, it's a, there's also a cultural element. I mean, you mentioned Constance and like there's a French understanding of what monstering might entail. There's an American, mm-hmm. you know, every culture is going to have a, its own take on what monstering is. And I think there's even a quote from what Jeffrey Jerome Cohen Mm. where he says we can understand a culture by what it calls monstrous. Yes. I'm curious to know, since you've kind of lived in a variety of places, like you lived in Paris for a long time and then in Liverpool, now you're in London, you're originally from Long Island. Do you have a sense of these different cultures and places that you've lived and how their cultural relationship to monstrosity might differ or might be the same? Mm. That's a very good question. There's a train going right, right past my window right now. Um, I don't know. I mean, in the last few years, and I mean, since 2016, basically, but even before that, it seems like the other in all of the places I've lived is the immigrant. It's someone who's not from 
wherever you're from. And we've seen that in America. We've seen it, you know, with Brexit and now this like insane scheme that the British government has to send refugees to Rwanda or like people who are who are asking for refuge while they're waiting for their decision to come in, they're going to be shipped off to Rwanda. And I think like the Rwandan government is giving the UK money in exchange or maybe it's the other way around. I'm sorry. Not super up on the the minutiae of this deal, but like it stinks any way you look at it. And in France, obviously, we have this kind of like forever specter of the the Front National. And you know, first it was Jean Marie Le Pen, and now it's his daughter Marine. Like they're they're gaining in not only in popularity, but in like kind of a sense of validation from mainstream French society. So I, I, it does seem to be like person-based right now or ethnicity-based or religion-based. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Uh, and then I want to go back to, uh, I guess like Virginia Woolf and just to make sure that people who are listening have an idea of, I guess like a general progression in feminist art and literature that your book is at least partially reckoning with, because there's a passage in Woolf that I want to make sure we talked about. I don't know if you mm -hmm. mentioned it earlier, but it's the, it's the thing where she talks about uh, the angel in the house. Mm -hmm. Like she says, I killed the angel in the house in, mm -hmm. in something. I think it's in, what is it in professions for women? What is it the yeah. piece of writing that this comes from where she says, yeah. I killed the angel in the house, but I haven't mastered the telling the truth about my body. Yeah, exactly. And that's like something, if I'm being honest, I had not fully thought about is the way in which only recently have we seen women artists really reckon with the female body in a way that is not maybe catering to the male gaze or the demands of the patriarchy, like real, like in some of the artists in here, like I'm thinking of Carol Schneeman, you know, where there are these really radical expressions of the embodied experience of being female that I don't think, I mean, unless I'm 
blind to history. I don't think there was anything happening in like the 16th century that would compare to <laughs> to Carol Schneeman, though maybe, <laughs> no. maybe there was, <laughs> no. yeah. you know? So it, I, I just think that that's something worth maybe talking about a bit more is like killing the angel in the house, first of all, is what killing the, or, or um, refusing and escaping the kind of predetermined role for the woman in society as being subservient to the man mm. in the house, right? Yeah. That is what Virginia is speaking of. She sort of she sort of mastered that one. She was doing her own work yeah. and was her own person. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the common kind of story about modernism, right, is that they're overthrowing the Victorian way of being in the world and, you know, comportment and ways of living and ways of writing, and they want to make it new. It's got to be, you know, like reflective of the the hubbub and craziness of the modern city. It has to respond to the kind of harrowing fragmenting of the the First World War and the, you know, kind of technological warfare that, that you saw in, in that war. And there's a kind of sense in the modernist moment that you've got to reinvent civilization and, and save it from this horrible past. And part of that, I think, is what's governing Wolf's overthrowing of the angel in the house, this kind of, you know, perfect Victorian hostess. It's like she's overthrowing, you know, centuries of oppression in which women sort of went along with things in order to keep peace or get ahead. I mean, you know, there's this this idea. Or survive. In, or survive, exactly. Yeah. You had to, you know, hitch your wagon to some man and then your fortunes rose or fell with him. But then she has this great turn in that essay to towards the body. And she writes in something, a passage that I think Jane Marcus called the parable of the fisherwoman of the creative process as being like a fisherwoman who's thrown her line out into, you know, the pond or whatever, the lake, and is letting it drift where it will, you know, into the depths, trying to find, you know, something to, to bite. And then all of a sudden kind of, she has to like pull it back there's like a big splash. There's a lot of commotion. And it's that the line was drifting somewhere where it wasn't supposed to go. And the fisherwoman knew it. And she had to, you know, bring her imagination back in line. And so Wolf says, you know, I, I, f I found that I haven't been able to tell the truth of my experiences as a body, but perhaps in 50 years, some woman will be able to. And if you look forward 50 years from 1931, when she's writing this, you get to 1981. And I think you can actually, you know, look a little bit earlier and look at the kind of convulsions of the 1960s, the, you know, Vietnam protests, the civil rights marches, the kind of way that, you know, once again, Western culture was trying to overthrow a feeling that, you know, the, the world that they'd inherited was not righteous and, you know, was just leading to a destructive war all over again. So it's out of that kind of 60s moment that you get, you know, the rise of feminism, obviously, as we know it today, or second wave feminism, but also these, these feminist artists who, you know, like the birth control pill has been legalized, they're fighting for, you know, the legalization of abortion, there's a sense that a woman's body is going to be hers to do with as she pleases now in a way that it's never been before, you know, in all of recorded history. Um, the right to have sex as you want to and for there not to be a baby necessarily if you don't want there to be one is just like 
life-changing and art-changing for, for feminist artists. So yeah, I think, I mean, I know that Carol H. Neiman was a grand fan of Wolf and had a lot of her books in her library with all like marked up with marginalia. And so I don't know if she knew the professions for women speech and essay per se, but I think that we can definitely see her as working in the kind of wake of Wolf's, you know, fisherwoman for sure. That's encouraging to think about, you know, that Wolf was casting her line and that some of the things she was thinking about and writing about and sort of working toward were later realized, like other writers and generations uh, in the future sort of carried the mantle, like picked up the, what do you call it? Like picked up, passed, she passed the torch to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then like as as you were talking I was thinking about the abortion issue in the states and how retrograde things have gotten here and it's just yeah. like progress is not linear you know yeah, there's like ups definitely. and downs and there's you know one step forward two steps back it's always kind of yeah. a messy process but in general I guess we're trending mostly in the right way do you agree you think the arc <laughs> of the universe bends towards justice <laughs> I hope so maybe that's what I have to believe just to be able to wake up in the morning you know I mean it's just I know it can be a frustrating time I guess it's always a frustrating time to be alive isn't it I mean has there ever it been is. a non a non-frustrating time to be alive? no you think it you think god this is such a frustrating time and then something even worse happens and you're like oh god it was so much easier back then <laughs> yeah I mean I can get yeah I can get like you know I wish I were just a more primitive human, like hunter gatherer. Life was simpler. Maybe it was shorter, <laughs> but that's okay. We knew what we had to do. We I could know. see the stars. It was beautiful. Yeah. There were not there were no crowds or smog, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I know. I wish helps. I had the moral clarity of a simpler person. That's right. That's right. But uh I want to talk uh, a little bit more about something you mentioned earlier, which is sort of the construction of this book and how it evolved. I think from maybe initial conception to finished product, mm -hmm. because this is, I think you said, for me, this book is an experiment in critical form as much mm -hmm. as it is a feminist intervention. Like that bit, I think is interesting, especially maybe to the writers listening, mm -hmm. because books kind of, as you work on them, sort of tell you what they are, right? Like you might come in with all these ideas, like often grand ideas about what the thing is going to look like. Mm -hmm. But the finished product is almost never matching up with that. It always kind of asserts its own identity. And you had to like kind of find your way there, right? It's a bit of a messy yeah. process. Like as we're speaking about the messy movements of history, the messy movements of the creative process yeah. are kind of similar where it's like, oh, yeah. I'm going to go this way. And then it's like, nope, that's a dead end. I got to, you know, go backwards a little bit and then start over again or whatever it is. But this book feels like as you're reading it, like an exploration. And one of the things I love in a work of nonfiction like this is when, is when you can really feel the author thinking. Mm. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I felt like I was yeah. sort of, you have a very live mind, as I think many people who have read your work have noted. And so as a reader, you sort of get to uh, go along for the ride, like inside Lauren's brain. Mm. <laughs> so can you just talk about those <laughs> those evolutions and the way in which you sort of came to the realization that you were experimenting with critical mm. form. Yeah, definitely. 
it's that's the thing about nonfiction that's so tricky, right? Is that you have to do the proposal first and pretend you know what it's going to be about. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this is what I'm going to do in this chapter. And this is in this chapter. And this is the narrative arc. And then we end here. And so in my my proposal, I had it organized around different parts of the monster's body. So like wings and claws and teeth and things like that. And as I started, you know, writing the book, like under those headings, under those rubrics, I realized that there were people I wanted to write about in like more than one chapter. And then actually people I wanted to write about who didn't fit in any chapter. And I ended up feeling like it was actually too schematic. It was too like, I don't know, fragmentary. And then also too focused on on like the monster per se like scary monsters you know with crazy teeth and wings and as i was researching like the the female grotesque and there's a lot written about women and monsters and like sphinxes and frankenstein and so on and so forth it just felt like all of that had been done and done brilliantly and that i didn't actually have anything to add to that conversation I've never been into like horror as a genre, either, you know, films or books or whatever. And I didn't feel drawn to it now just because I'd said I was going to write about art monsters. So that was kind of early on a moment when I realized, and I borrowed this from Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette Winterson has a a collection of essays about art called Art Objects. And she says in her introduction to that book that you can read it as art objects or art objects. So that's where I got that idea to flip monsters from a noun into a verb. And also very early on, I was talking to a really good friend of mine who's a poet called Sandy Parmer. She's Anglo-American, but based here. And I was getting kind of, I don't know, bogged down in like trying to argue why such and such an artist was or wasn't an art monster. And she was like, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't actually have to like legislate who is and who isn't. You can just kind of write about these people and then let the reader decide. And that was another really freeing moment for me. So yeah, it just felt like at a certain point, I had to just let the material go where it wanted to go. It was like, you know, it it had its own kind of agenda and it, it was guided by my mind and the associations I could make and the kind of like vibrations I felt or like analogies I saw between the work of all these different artists, but it couldn't be told what to do necessarily. So for example, the, I knew I wanted to write about Kara Walker back in the day when I was still trying to write about like sphinxes per se, but as I was writing about Kara Walker, that took me into Betty Saar, who is an artist who thinks that Kara Walker is just an abomination and an embarrassment to the black community and, you know, shouldn't, be doing the things that she's doing. And so as I started writing about that kind of debate over who gets to tell the story of, you know, Black American history in art, that took me into the Dana Schutz kind of dust up over her portrait of Emmett Till in his coffin. And because I was also mindful of the fact that I wanted to write about whiteness to kind of decenter whiteness and kind of put it under the lens and, and be scrutinizing it because obviously so much of the work that we think of as like iconic 70s feminist work is by like thin white women. I wanted to think about, you know, what, if we're going to write about black artists in this frame, then it's just going to be othering them all over again. Cause I'm taking the white body as like the standard and then writing about black artists as a kind of deviation from that white standard. So 
coming to that Dana Schutz chapter by following the thread that led from Kara Walker, I realized that that was actually going to be a way to be interrogating the just the whiteness of the you know the presumed whiteness of of the artist who's making the work and how that can actually affect the way that the work is produced, if that makes any sense. It does. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes sense on a, a few levels. Like, first of all, it sort of jives with what we were talking about in terms of the nonlinear path that history takes. But I think yeah. it also is a more accurate depiction of the way in which books are created and the way that, especially works of nonfiction like this, where they're, you're doing research, you're visiting galleries, you're thinking, you're drawing associations, the way in which art feeds art, right? It's never just like straight lines. So I want to, I guess like next shift to talking about sexuality in feminist art and beauty. They're tied mm -hmm. together, but you know, obviously women are often sexualized in art and have been, you know, through the decades and centuries, but in the work of the women that you're depicting in this book, the work is very sexual, but not sexualized. That's the key mm -hmm. distinction. Uh, we talk about Carolee Schneeman. I think I called her Carol Schneeman earlier, so mm -hmm. now I'm going to correct it's the okay. record. I just, uh, you know, I'm looking at my notes here, but Carolee Schneeman's uh, interior scroll where she, it's like a performance piece where she is literally pulling a scroll of paper and reading aloud from it. Uh, and she's pulling it from her vagina. So this would be work that has a sexual component to it, but it, she's definitely not sexualized. <laughs> you know, she's owning that. And I want to say mm -hmm. you posted an, an image of this sort of infamous performance of interior scroll on Instagram and they took it down. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So that kind of art is verboten on Instagram. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So still, it's still too subversive for Mark Zuckerberg's kingdom, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, I but, haven't tried posting Linda Banglis's art forum ad yet, but maybe I should just to see what happens. Yeah, just as an experiment. You could, that could be like its own Instagram. It's like, let's test the boundaries <laughs> of what's accessible, acceptable in polite society or whatever. Exactly. But, so, I, you know, it's impossible for us to cover everyone. Some of these names we've already talked about, like Hannah Wilkie, uh, there's Carolee Schneeman, uh, Dana Schutz, who painted the, the portrait of Emmett Till in his casket, Virginia Woolf. The writers, I think, that get the most attention, Audre Lorde, Virginia Woolf, and Kathy Acker. Mm. Those are the three big names? Yeah, Teresa Hak Young Cha a bit as well. Okay, okay. And then uh, Maria Lasnig, mm. I'm trying to just kind of give people their props. But there, there's a lot, and that's part of the fun of reading the book is you sort of get like a, for me anyway, it's like a lesson in art history, contemporary art history. And when it comes to uh, being sexual in the work without the sexualization of women in the work, and also this issue of beauty in the work, because there are, even within the, like the boundaries of contemporary feminism or second wave feminism, often conflicts that emerge when a feminist artist puts work out in which she herself is featured. I think of the work of Hannah Wilkie mm -hmm. uh, and the, the photographs of herself where she's covered in these pieces of bubble gum that she's rendered into vulvas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people were saying that she was what performing for the male gaze. She was quite mm -hmm. attractive. And, mm -hmm. you know, there is, and this is often the case, you said it just a moment ago, that a lot of times, you know, when we talk about 
the racial aspect of this work, uh, you know, back in the seventies or whatever, it was often thin white women. I think you said right. who were making this art and were considered like iconic and yeah. were sort of embraced by, uh, what do you call it? Institutions, museums, all that kind of stuff. Very recently, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just, uh, I'm just interested to hear you talk about that aspect of it and the battles maybe that some of these artists had to mm. fight to be taken seriously and how I think I, their work was sometimes like misapprehended, mm -hmm. you know, that it was, I don't know if that was what Hannah Wilkie was doing. That's what she was accused of doing, but I don't get the sense that that was what she was up to. But yeah, she's, she's a really interesting example because she, as she said in an interview with the, art journalist Cindy Nemzer in the mid seventies. I want my art to seduce. I'm tired of going to galleries and seeing ugly art on the walls. I want art to be more beautiful than I am. And she's a little bit, it's funny. They, I think earlier in the conversation, Cindy Nemzer had asked her about Eva Hesse, who had died, you know, tragically young a few years before this conversation. And I think Nemzer was just asking her, you know, I feel like I see a lot of correspondences between your work. You're both working in latex and Hannah Wilkie immediately is on the back foot and is very defensive. And it's like, well, I was working with latex first and people always compare our work because we're both young women, but it's not anything like each other. There's no resemblance there. And that's when she goes into this rant about she wants the work to be beautiful. And I think that's really funny because Eva Hesse is probably making some of the ugly art that um, Hannah Wilkie had in mind. So Hannah Wilkie, she has this sense that, first of all, that, that it's important for art to be beautiful, which, you know, is obviously a debatable idea and what even is beauty to begin with, um, leaving aside the, you know, various issues with Eva Hesse's work and, and aesthetics and beauty. But then she is making a lot of these as I said before, she called them her performalist self-portraits, including the SOS series, which was, you know, part of an actually an elaborate game that she did during these performances where she would pass around sticks of gum to the audience and ask them to chew them up and then give them to her. And she made a kind of like board game that I don't, it's a little bit, I'm, I'm not very good at board games and like rules and stuff. I kind of like you know, gloss, my eyes gloss over when I, when everyone tries to explain a game to me. So I can't tell you what the game was about. I just know that it was a game, but part of the game involved all of these self-portraits of her looking just like, I don't, like I say in the book, like one of those women in the ads where um, women are eating salad and they look like the salad is like giving them an orgasm or something. <laughs> okay. Like wait, wait, wait. I got to stop salad. you. I got to stop you. Cause when I read about this, I was like, okay, I haven't, have I seen this meme? I like had to search my memory, right? And by the way, I just want to express also solidarity with you when it comes to board games and card oh. games. <laughs> I can't play, I'm not interested in games at all. Like I maybe if I'm it. in Vegas, I can like play blackjack, but that's it. I don't want to play like Monopoly with you ever. I like, know, I, yeah. but I have a kid now, so I have to like teach him how to play stuff. And nope. I'm just like, oh, I can't follow. I don't know. No, I'm not I'm playing sorry. with my children either. I'm sorry, children. <laughs> Daddy hates games. It's all business <laughs> for dad. Um, but yeah, no, I think that, uh, and then what was the other thing? What were, You were just talking about games and then it was. The laughing alone with salad. Meme. Oh, laughing alone with salads. So yeah, yeah, I Googled this. Yeah. Because I had to. I was like, have I seen this before? And I spent a good, you know, 20 minutes just perusing. 
these photos. It's very, it's like funny, but it's also like depressing and like true to life. And there's some like real sadness in it. You know, it's interesting. Um, yeah, totally. And but that's it, the kind of that's the vibe I get from those Hannah Wilkie images. If you you know if you're familiar with them, like she's like got some sunglasses and you know the like arm of the sunglasses are in her mouth, or she's like you know got her fingers in her mouth. They're like playing on as you say, very sexualized images of women, but in such a like ditzy way that it's it's so clear. I don't know if it's just to me or if I just have like an inbuilt understanding of Hannah Wilkie, I don't know, but like it seems clear to me that there's a distance between the image and the artist. And it is reinforced for me by the presence of all of these little chewing gum vulvas that she has stuck all over her body. And that give the series, their title, she calls it the SOS Scarification Object Series. And she says they're like scars. They're meant to reference like African scarring rituals, which are part of, you know, beautification rituals in some like abstract African country. Obviously, you know, it's a little bit of Eurocentrism happening there. But she also says, you know, that it's kind of reference to her Jewish heritage and the fact that if she'd been, you know, born in 1940 in Europe instead of in America, you know, she would have been kaput in the Holocaust. So there, these scars, I think, are there to kind of like spur discourse or spur thought or consideration and, and invite you to think about these images in another way, to think about beauty, because she's inarguably conventionally beautiful, but think about what's behind that. I mean, she had a nose job. So like, there's also kind of some literal like carving and re-sculpting of her face like a piece of gum um not to take the metaphor too far but you know that feels fair you know it's that kind of body doesn't just happen it's not like god plonked her down that way and everyone was just oh she's so perfect you know it takes a lot of like diet and exercise and cosmetic surgery um so and she was completely vilified by a certain set of feminist critics who like you know, apart from some of the things that they wrote about Hannah Wilkie, like I personally revere, one of them wrote a really important book on Agnes Varda that I like used for my Agnes Varda book. So it's like weird to come across Sandy Flitterman Lewis in a different context, hating on Hannah Wilkie. Uh, but the most famous denunciation of her came from the art critic Lucy Lepard, who years later recanted. But at the time she wrote that Hannah Wilkie's like a glamour girl. She thinks she's being subversive, but she's not. She's just catering to the male gaze instead of subverting it. And it kind of, I don't know, there's this kind of moment in the late 70s into the 80s where feminist critics, especially those who were like Laura Mulvey, for instance, working on film theory, where it just seemed apparent that you could not represent the female body in any way, shape, or form without it in some way being perceived as catering to the male gaze. So there was like just this sense that you shouldn't do it. The artist Mary Kelly made a really famous work about her son, about motherhood, called Postpartum Document. And it's like this thorough documentation of her son's early years, but there's not a single picture of him or of her it's all just data. It's like his growth charts and reports from school and like the, the liners from his diapers with like poo on them. So it's like a thorough, you know, accounting of this baby body and how (laughs) it evolved. Yeah. But like, there's no pictures. 
And that's part of this kind of feminist refusal to cater to the gaze or to offer up the female body or, or you know, female body as, as mother in any way that it could be misconstrued. And they said about Hannah that she just, she wasn't theorizing her work enough. There wasn't enough kind of ironic distance for them. And I just really disagree with that is what it comes down to. (laughs) Okay. This is where I'm going to dance a line and I hope I don't like wobble off of it, but I think it's an important point to make. And I think you actually write about this a bit in the book and maybe even in this section of the book. And it's like, to me, it re- it, like the it reads as parody. She's parodying, mm. yeah, yeah, the way that culture makes these expectations or de- you know demands these things of females to you know cater to the male gaze and to sort of perform a certain kind of femininity and conventional beauty for the camera or whatever. Yeah. And it's, then it's I think a, if I could, yeah. I was just going to say, it's a bit like, you know, Wolf has this idea of the angel in the house who might not actually physically be a woman who's in your house telling you what to write, but it's like an internalized sense of what you can or can't do as a woman who's like coaching you on how to be, you know, the most womanly woman you can be. And I think that that's who who Hannah Wilkie is parodying. I think it's like the 70s version of the angel in the house is the woman who's like just dieted and disciplined her body so that she can appeal to the man, you know? And, and, Dexa, and was it Dexatrim? <laughs> like these yeah, like exactly, amphetamines. Like exactly. it feels like Yeah, like that kind the of Ozempic of the 70s. That's right. That's um, right. And and it was also a sense there's also a sense of like competing with other women, you know, I can be thinner than you, I can be hotter than you. So it, that's that's she's parodying this kind of 70s version of the angel in the house, I think. Okay. So I agree. And you know, Maybe humor in particular. This is the the tension and the line that I want to sort of like walk along here because mm-hmm. I think what we're talking about are like very real issues that women have faced and continue to face. Female artists maybe like, you know, most uh, germane to your book and what we're discussing here, but really all women. And this art is representative of that. And it's painful right this these are these are kind of uh generational traumas or you know something that women share and that feminism is trying to correct and change right and it's interesting the way in which the seriousness of that mission it's a serious mission i think can sometimes be humorless like you know when hannah wilkie is making this art man, I guess there's, you know, they didn't feel there was enough ironic distance, but they're not in a joking mood. And maybe she was like, and I think that like, it becomes this kind of self-policing issue and you can see like feminists turn on one another, even though they share the same essential mission. That's what I kind of felt in that. Yeah. Right. Completely. I mean, that still happens. happens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's because, I mean, but I guess the question is why it's because people are wounded and wounded people can sometimes be in no mood for joking. Yeah. Other people deal with their wounds by joking. We all have different mm. ways of sort of coping with life's slings and arrows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And I think for feminists, there's a sense that there's only so much pie to go around, if you know what I mean. It's it's like under capitalism, only some of us can succeed and, you know, be 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 successful, get the job, get the, you know, publish the article, whatever, get the the big show at whatever gallery. And instead of, you know, women kind of lifting each other up and supporting each other and making more opportunities for themselves and and other women, they just kind of tear each other down and, you know, hate on one another and say that there's not enough ironic distance in their work. I mean, like aesthetic critique is fine. Like I'm, you know, I'm not anti-critique at all. I'm, you know, a critic half the time, but I do think that there's an enormous amount of like undercutting women done by other women. And I don't know why that is. I see it a lot in women who are like a 10 years or so older than me specifically. I've had some some bad run-ins and some, yeah, just some really unfortunate encounters where it's like, we should be helping one another instead of sniping at one another. But I hear that. I mean, I hear I can that only, you know, try to model good, like feminist citizenship myself. Don't know what else to do. Yeah. I mean, I hear that in the sense of like, I hear what you're saying, but I also hear yeah. that repeatedly on this show from women. I've heard that multiple times really? through the years. Yeah. That like, Interesting. like there are some women who really like are good feminist citizens and try to lift other women up, but there are sometimes, uh, you know, situations where there's like a sense of competition and yeah, conflict completely. that emerges. I mean, from this. the reviewer um, for the TLS begins her review by saying, I wanted to hate this book because Lauren Elkin is younger than me, cuter than me, and like better educated than me or something like that. And this is someone I know socially, like we're friendly. So I know it's coming from a good place. I don't, she's not trying to, you know, start something. And she gave it a very nice review on the whole. But still, I was amazed that, that, that she, not only that she would write that, but that someone would publish that. I, I was trying to imagine a male writer saying that about another male writer and, and couldn't. <laughs> Trying to think of who I feel that way about. There's got to be some guy out there. <laughs> Occasionally, like, I kind of feel that way about Carl Ova Kanausgaard, though he's older than I am. <laughs> he's older than me. He's a Norse god. He's a silver fox. <laughs> he's the like, epitome of what a writer should look like in the uh, imagination. Like a male, you know, uh, he's got every, he smokes. Yeah, totally. He still looks good and he smokes. The whole thing. It's amazing. He does. But I want to keep talking about beauty a little bit. There's some things that I underlined that I just think are like worth even just reading aloud because I like them so much. But you say we are socially obligated to try and make ourselves look young and beautiful and then mocked and undermined when we don't succeed as well as we do. I underline that. I also underlined so many feminist artists have turned to abjection, ugliness, roughness in order to be taken seriously. And then I underlined to be gendered female is to be caught between beauty and excess. I think this is not you, but somebody you're quoting. No, that's me. Oh, that is you. Okay, yeah. sorry. Because I, I put she writes. <laughs> okay. This is yeah. a failure of my note taking, which is <laughs> a common okay. theme on this show. But to be gendered, to be gendered females, to be caught between beauty and excess, to be a monster is to insist on both. Mm. I like that quite a lot. Like that's maybe what monstering is. You can be beautiful and excessive, and refuse to be caught in some yeah. sort of like middle ground, or to you know, it's just to sort of refuse any shackles 
imposed yeah, on you by basically. others. And uh, I am also aware via social media, Instagram in particular. And I don't know, are you on, are you on Instagram? I don't mm-hmm. know who's on anything anymore, but uh, all of us are familiar with it, at least to some extent at this point, I think. And something that I have noticed in my timeline and just as like a casual observer is that there are in the literary community, certain female writers who are doing a kind of Wilkie-esque performance of self and maybe (laughs) gender roles and expectations in their Instagram. And it's not always well received uh, by women, I've noticed. Hmm. It's probably not always accurately received by men who like aren't in on the joke or don't even understand what they're up to, but just see it as some kind of like titillation. Mm -hmm. But there are, I think, some literary writers who maybe with this sense of there being a limited amount of seats at the table, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of capitalist thing, that that scarcity mindset and that feeling Mm -hmm. of like, I've got to get people's attention uh, somehow, some way. And they're, or they're conventionally attractive and they're just kind of mm-hmm. leveraging it, but they're doing so with like, like a, a wink and maybe like a feminist understanding. I don't know. Do, do you observe mm. similar? Have you seen this? And I'm wondering who you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'm almost scared to say, cause I don't want to like, I mean, you know, it's like, I think of like this writer, Elizabeth Ellen, you know, she is constantly posting photos of herself and like various states of like being half dressed smoking Mm. cigarettes, Mm. like wearing fishnets, like, you know, just like sort of being like an art monster. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, she's monstering, I think. Yeah. Do you know, have you seen others? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, not, I don't, not really, maybe a little bit. I know that I feel very vexed about my Instagram account and, and kind of more so when I taught, I was teaching at various universities for a while and stopped a few years ago because you know, writing was just more important to me than sitting in endless uh, meetings. But yeah, there I had a kind of more a keener sense then that I couldn't, I had to be really careful about what kind of image I was promoting on the internet. And yeah, I don't know how to, how to talk about it in any more detail. It's clearly something I have a problem with. I admire, I think, women who are able to, to like live in their bodies more um, on Instagram. But then I think, you know, I live in my body plenty, like in real life. Do I need to do it on Instagram? But I, I do worry, you know, that there's, there's some, some, like trick I'm missing that I could have like a cooler Instagram profile if I were, you know, wearing fishnets on there more or something. But you know, I mean, it's like you've what, gotta... you know. Totally. Like when I came to, down to to do this interview, I was like, what should I wear? Should I just wear the sweater I've been wearing all day? Should I put on a nice shirt? And I was like, you know what? I'm a working mother. It's a Friday afternoon at the end of the day. Like I'm just going to wear, you know, my sweater. I put on lipstick, but like you, apart from as that. As did I. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I get that too. I think ultimately like what I've come to is I've just got to dress like myself. And I think when it comes to yeah, social totally. media, you know, if we're, if we're continuing to talk about it, you sort of have to do what's comfortable for you. I will say that there is something kind of sad to me. Like there is a sadness. It's not necessarily specific to a person, 
like like you do you you know if you want to put up yeah. photos of yourself and sort of like pretend at certain or i don't know just try to like emulate your f- fashion photograph heroes or make yourself into a pinup like go for it i don't care but i feel like it's that thing about seats at the table or not enough pie and people being so desperate to break through that they'll almost like do anything to capture your attention yeah. Like that's kind of the culture that we live in now where you're just yeah, trying to cut of. through. I get that. I'm sure you get that. Anyone making creative work on some level gets the challenge of that. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, is this yeah, the totally. only way to do it? <laughs> like you just got to yeah. start taking off your clothes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I just, I don't know. I resent the way that Instagram invites you to create like a brand around you as a writer or, you know, whatever your your life is. And I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to like package my life up into some kind of Instagram brand. And it's a damn shame, I should say, because your life, if you packaged your life, like it is a very, I'm, I'm thinking of you living in Paris, living <laughs> in England, flanusing all over the world, getting educated in f- France, speaking fluent French, translating. <sighs> like this is aspirational. It does. It, it is. And you're stylish because you it is there. and it isn't. People don't like it. They don't like it so much. They think I'm like rolling in money or something. They have no idea <laughs> what it's really like. But, you know, it's true. It's true. Bush versus Gore happened and the Supreme Court decided who was the president. I was like, I'm getting out. See ya, America. And I worked really hard to have a visa for many years and then eventually to get citizenship. And it was very, very difficult. And I cried a lot, but you know, voila, it worked. Here we are. So, okay. But really Bush versus Gore was the impetus? Yeah, that was, you know, that was, that was the first time that I really was like, I can't actually stay here. I don't want to stay in this country. And so between 1999 and 2004, I was kind of back and forth between Paris and and New York. And then had decided like, okay, I'm going to go to France for like a year in 2004 and see how it goes. And then soon after I arrived in 2004, there was Bush versus Kerry, I guess. Sure. And I was like, I mean, the first time around it was a Supreme Court decision, but this time he actually legitimately won. I can't, I can't be doing with this country. Wow. Um, so you're canary in the coal mine experience happened early because yeah i mean i'm the fool who was like listen this was an aberration there bush versus bush cheney is the low point in american presidential Uh history we can't get worse than this like thank god we survived and i know i am a political genius with uh, (laughs) 2020 vision (laughs) and uh we're just yeah we're thriving now it's great so glad we got past that but i think that's interesting and a little bit enviable i gotta say because I think that the day-to-day experience of living here, especially over the past decade or so, has been really taxing, like psychologically and emotionally, even if you're like a casual observer, you know, you're not somebody, I follow politics maybe more than I should, but it's hard. It's hard to take it all in and to kind of go about your day-to-day and not be consumed with terror about the future. You know, that stuff is pervasive. I just had some time with some old college friends this week and it came up in conversation and you could just feel it. So many people are very scared and have a dark view, but yeah, you got out. I'm curious to like getting out and being at a geographical remove and at a cultural remove from all mm. of the kind of American noise. Like, did it help your mental health? Did it help you have a sense of distance or do you still feel kind of like inextricably American? It's so funny because I feel, I feel like it's both. Um, my partner is American. 
our son has an American accent, despite the fact that he lives in London, like goes to a British school. And and I'm I'm just yeah. I mean, I I listen to all the cricket media podcasts. I'm completely addicted to you know anything John Favreau and John Lovett do. And yeah, so I you know I'm I'm not very distant in a kind of pop culture sense. I'm distant in like an experiential sense in that I've been away for a long time and I don't know lots of things about what daily life is like in America or like what the commercials are. Or like I don't even recognize New York hardly anymore. But yeah, I feel I feel like I don't think it's necessarily helped. I don't know. I would say in terms of mental health, one big reason why I don't go home, apart from the fact that I just don't feel like it's home anymore, is that. I have a five-year-old and I don't want him to have to be doing active shooter drills at school. Like I don't want him to grow up with that kind of fear. And I have lots of friends who, you know, like after the school shooting, the last one in Uvalde, well, that wasn't the last one, but that was the last big one, I guess, like had to then get up and send their kids to school the next day. Like I, that I think is like a level of like mental burden that I don't have because I live here. That's no small thing. Yeah. And you, let's see, moved to Paris in, what, 99, studied there. Like we talked about, you have your PhD from City University of New York and the University de Paris. Of Paris, and, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you got your master's of, what, philosophy in French from the Sorbonne? Yeah. You, you speak, obviously, beautiful French. Like, you studied the language there. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, okay. I started it when I was on Long Island, you know, we had to take a language. Oh, you did? Okay. But yeah, I didn't really properly learn it till I was in France. So, you know, you've had, people can read your bio, you've had uh, this like international existence for your adult life, pretty much. Yeah. But before becoming a writer, you worked as an actor, <laughs> a singer, a piano accompanist, an assistant at a literary agency, a copywriter at a Korean B2B telecommunications company, a barista, an office temp, a birthday party entertainer at Chuck E. Cheese, and an assistant at a public relations company where Jennifer Lopez's publicist once threw a phone at her head. That's why I'm reading your bio. Uh, I know. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. This is an embarrassment of riches. But I guess the the, the throwing the phone, since it's the last it's thing I mentioned. It's multiple novels. It really is. I can't wait to read them all. This is your entire oeuvre right here, just waiting. Uh, you know, but the publicist threw a phone at you. That sounds very Harvey Weinstein. Uh, you yeah. Know, but what is it about the entertainment industry? People just, I think that there is just, I have a whole theory about it, especially since I live in LA, that there are... Mm -hmm basic human courtesies and just basic human issues that the Hollywood business culture, because of how competitive it is, because of how, you know, this scarcity mindset that we're to, we've been talking about really is pervasive throughout Hollywood. Like there's only so many parts, there's only so many seats at the table. And because the money is so big and there's fame, mm -hmm. the competition and this sense of desperation or something that it, that it engenders makes or, or i guess maybe provides opportunity for a certain kind of person to thrive maybe not even the artists but the people in the like ancillary professions around the art mm. and you get guys like harvey weinstein who if they amass enough power and box office success can essentially just behave monstrously yeah. <laughs> and and then because they're at the top it sort of filters down and there is a kind of 
Like, yeah, you throw phones at people's heads. Like, I, I just, I guess the question that I would have is like, I know that like there is probably a tech industry executive in Silicon Valley who has thrown an iPhone at somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's happened at least once, but I feel like yeah. that sort of kind of like goonish behavior happens more often in Hollywood. And it's just sort of like, oh yeah, yeah. Harvey threw a phone. Ha ha. Jennifer yeah. Lopez's publicist threw a phone. Yeah. It's just, I, you know, it's wearisome. Yeah. But I mean, ducked. it's wearisome, but it was kind of, well, cause this was the year 2000. This is like autumn of 2000 after I graduated university and went out into the big world to work. Um, so it wasn't a cell phone. It was like a desk, one of those desk phones. So she threw the receiver at me, but it, you know, had a little cord attached to it, so it didn't go very far. Oh, good. Well, it's saved by the cord then. <laughs> exactly. I was totally fine. I was just completely appalled. Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean, you, and the then... question is, what did I do to merit getting a, throw, a phone thrown in my head? You might well ask. I might. Um, and I will tell you, it is that I, I, I mailed Jennifer Lopez her birthday party photographs. I did not FedEx them. I just put them in an envelope. And wrote her address on them and put a little stamp on it and sent it on its way. The nerve of you. <laughs> no, but it's like so dumb. I mean, like, of course I should have FedExed them. I was just so like young and naive. And she was like, send these to Jennifer. So I sent them to Jennifer. Yeah. I had a similar job like that right out of college. <laughs> I remember I had to send, I worked at a, what do you call it? Production company. And I had to mm-hmm. send Mike Myers a carton of Parliament cigarettes on set up Ooh. in Toronto. I remember that. I did not get a, a phone, th- you know, thrown at me, but that was the sort of stuff I had to do. I got, I had to get a lot of, I also had to get a lot of Cobb salads for people. I remember doing oh, that. Oh, right. Um, but yeah, like actor, I mean, we're not going to go over everything that you've done, but I'm just, just yeah. interesting that you had this, you know, we all have, I think, or most of us have these circuitous paths professionally, but you've done quite a lot, actor and singer and a yeah. piano accompanist. So yeah, in my torrid youth, you were an actor. I, yeah, yeah. I started out doing musical theater. I wanted to be on Broadway, but realized that, you know, talk about a scarcity economy. Like there's not, there's not actually that much work around for actors and especially, you know, in musical theater. So you might end up finding yourself cast in like SpongeBob the musical and being really happy about it. And I was like, no, I'm a Sondheim purist. I could never do SpongeBob. (laughs) So I got out of there. You got out of there. I know. Who is it? Now it's reminding me of what is it? Lee Miller? Mm-hmm. The photographer. Yeah. I spent some time on her Wikipedia. I got fascinated by her and her trajectory. Kind of similar. She was like a a, a model, right? And then yeah. became a photographer. I think that yeah. that trajectory, as someone who's like in front of the camera or visual, who then becomes either like a someone who goes behind the camera or turns to writing. That happens a bit. And I think Mm. that that perspective is interesting. Like, do you have a sense of maybe your life as a performance artist, whether you're acting or singing or playing a musical Mm. instrument, how those experiences might color the work that you do now as a critic and essayist and writer of fiction? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, the next book that I'm writing is about the voice, about women singing voices. And it's the kind of memoir component is about like being a young soprano in the nineties and training and going to the conservatory and, you know, my performing arts high school. And, and it's about, it's a kind of attempt to challenge the way that we think about the voice as like kind of unified and an authentic expression of who we are, 
because I know otherwise. I know that we have lots of different voices that we can do and we choose the one that we think will represent us the way we want to be perceived. And the same is true of women's singing voices. There's no like one natural voice, for instance, that, you know, Beyonce is using and that's the only way she can sing. Like she can sing in lots of different ways. And in fact, there's a lot of craft that goes into Beyonce's interpretation of a song. It's not like, you know, there's this one moment and this is someone else's argument. I'm forgetting what their name is, but I cite them in a ballad on her, on the album she made, uh, is Formation the name of the album? I can't remember. I haven't written this chapter yet, but we're there's a kind of break in her voice at one point and it just sounds like the emotion of the song and the situation is just too much for her and her voice just breaks and it's completely calculated that's a thing that you can do with your voice to convey the presence of emotion you can make a decision to make your voice break and so the the book is called vocal break and it's about that place in the voice that sounds like a creak and actually when you're singing it's at the point where you're voice moves from your chest voice into your falsetto, the kind of passaggiato they call it in Italian, this like passage that it has to go through. And I spent so much of my early years trying to um, erase that break and make it as like, you know, make the voice as coherent as possible from the beginning of, from the bottom of your range to the top. That's what you're trained to do in like, you know, classical voice lessons. But as I've gotten older and listened to way more singers like Beyonce, um, I've realized that that's where all the good stuff is, that you can do so much with what's rough and and like not untrained, not like, you know, inauthentic or authentic. It's just a place where you can begin to do some work as an artist. So, yeah, it's a lot of material that came out of Art Monsters that was originally in Art Monsters, but had to be taken out because Art Monsters was just like monstrously big. Um, yeah, I, heard, yeah, I read I, think, I read that you I read that you cut 100,000 words. Yeah, that is now going to be part of this next book, which is called Vocal yeah. Break. A lot of that is going to be in Vocal Break. Okay. So, and before I let you go, because this is just too interesting not to bring up, <laughs> I think on your website, uh, along with your bio, you list, you say current projects include a novel, Scaffolding, mm -hmm. which is due out in 2024, I, I, yeah. I believe from FSG in the States, yeah. mm -hmm. but from Chateau and Windus in the UK. Uh, you're working on the aforementioned book about the female voice called Vocal Break, a biography of Gertrude Stein, a mm -hmm. translation of Marie Laure Bernadac's biography of Louise Bourgeois, mm -hmm. and translations of work by Colomb Schneck, Constance mm -hmm. Debray, and Lola Lafon. Mm -hmm. You have, and you're a mom. You've got a lot going on. <laughs> yes. I mean, I that's an unusual catalog of work in progress, I guess, is the yeah. point. Most well, people the, are like... the Louise Bourgeois is done. We're about to go into revisions of that. The Coulomb-Schneck is done. That comes out in May in the US. It's called the Paris Trilogy. It's excellent. And then, yeah, I'm I'm doing the Constance de Bray now. I'll do Lola Lafon after that. And then there's another book by Simon de Beauvoir that I'm doing um, called Les Belles Images. Uh, so I try to keep up the translation in parallel with the writing because it's a good kind of break from having to be the one who's thinking the thoughts. You know, I, I get to still work with language and stay close to French. And obviously, you know, it brings in money. So like I don't I couldn't make a living just from writing alone. But pairing that with translating, you know, it, it works out OK. Yeah, I can see how there could be a nice symbiosis there, like not yeah. just like in terms of like the practicalities of life and financial stuff, but just it's a different part of your brain maybe, but it's still literary. And mm -hmm. uh, 
like you say, how delightful not to have to be the person who's got to generate, you know, <laughs> at least the original text, you know. Yeah, and exactly. Completely. Last, last thing I will say, because I know you have to go be with your family. It's evening in the UK. But I, I do hope for your son's sake that there is some kind of grainy video of you performing as a birthday party entertainer at Chuck E. Cheese because, <laughs> what is he, five years old? I mean, this is the perfect time to leverage that professional experience and become like a superhero in your son's eyes. I mean, right? I don't actually think there is. I'm, I think there's not. It's sadly. a tragedy. Alas, but there's some you, grainy, you know, musicals in the high school, but uh, uh, not Chuck But you're not class. with the animatronic animals, which I feel like. I did not the- have to play the rat. No. I got to just wear like a little uniform and, you know, there's like dances with hand gestures and chants and stuff. Um, and now look yeah. at you. You're like a like you know. You're like a leading young like critic and essayist and all this stuff. And she got her start at Chuck E. Cheese, so ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you come far, and so can you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's inspiring, but it is uh, it is inspiring, and it is wonderful to meet you and to talk with you about Thank art you, monsters you and uh, all of your good work. And we'll look forward to vocal break and all the rest in the what months and years to come so congratulations and my thanks again thank you thank you so much okay you guys there we have it that was my conversation with lauren elkin her new book is called art monsters unruly bodies and feminist art available now from farrar strauss and Giroux. you can find lauren on the internet at laurenelkin.com follow her on social media i believe she is on twitter and instagram One more time, the book is called Art Monsters. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com. You can join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, whatever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, head on over to the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so that's an option. It's a book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a flashback episode where I dig into the Other People archives and share an outtake from an episode of your. And then I'm not sure. The holidays are almost upon us, right? It's almost here. So things are going to be happening on the show. You're going to be getting episodes, but I'm not entirely sure of the lineup yet. It's going to be a busy week for me this week, sorting it all out. So it will be a surprise, as it sometimes is. All right. 